All right, so 1 Corinthians 11. Um, and we're going to just kind of like remind ourselves what we talked about last week, and then we're going to dive into a, really a, a transitional discussion, but it's kind of the same discussion uh, as we get into 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Um, what we saw last week was the, the end of this discussion about uh, Paul with communion, with the Lord's Supper, with the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And uh, Paul's problem with the Corinthians, Paul's confrontation to them about what they're doing is what? What's, could you sum up for me what his uh, correction to them is about the Lord's Supper? They're having a party, which is not in and of itself like a horrible thing. They're, they're celebrating. That's not terrible. I mean, that was some of the idea, but, but it was the way in which they were partying. It, it was becoming a self-centered celebration. It was becoming a pride fest instead of a love fest. It was becoming about who had money versus who didn't have money. Sound like anything you've ever experienced in your life? Where there's a segregation by class or by some, some imagined boundary of you're different from me and I'm better than you or I'm worse than you? Humans do that, right? So this was showing up in the church and, and that was so offensive to Paul because the very nature of the Last Supper and the remembrance of the body of Christ is, is like ridiculously transformational from normal human affairs. It is the offense of the gospel to think that I cannot, in my humanity, in my ability, in my goodwill or my good intention or my good actions, measure up to what God needs me to be. That's offensive to people. Because, I mean, you can hear it all the time today. You can do whatever you set your mind to. You know, the answer lies within. You need to learn to love yourself. And these ideas about in, the help for you is all within you. All the answers lie inside of you. That's a, that's a very human-centered way of looking at life. And I'm not saying that people don't need to learn to love themselves. And, but I'm saying the answer is not be a better person. The answer is understand that you're hopeless and helpless without salvation, Right? And so the fact that God would leave a side position, that his son would come to earth out of the glory of heaven and lay down his life, that he would reach across every boundary, that he would lay aside every reason that he could say, you don't measure up or, or you're below me. And he would reach down into our lives and rescue us. And more than that, give his life for us. That's what we're celebrating, Right? Hopeless without it, and he did it, didn't have to, and if we would act like him, what a different church we would have. What a different world we would have if we would not see one another the way that humans tend to see one another. And so for Paul, this was hugely offensive that they were bringing this human way of, of measuring people and classifying people and rejecting people into this celebration of God who had every reason to be above us, stooping down and setting aside his glory to come to earth and laying down his life for you and I. And so Paul says, this doesn't fit. This is, and because of that, what Paul said is God is bringing judgment on their church. And judgment was in the form here of weakness, sickness, and death. There was a hand of God in discipline on the church of Christ. Now, what happens is sometimes we, we talk about this passage where it talks about a man ought to examine himself and we hear the word examine and we think about exams and we think about cramming and studying and hard questions and sweating and oh, what does this mean and can I find something and I'm looking for clues. 
But the context of this is not a big struggle to find out what the problem is. It was easy to see what the problem was, why God was bringing judgment. It was obvious. They just were refusing to see it. And I think that's a, that's a more common problem than I've got some sin in my life that I can't find. I have to examine myself. Like when you've got sin in your life, most of the time you know it, right? Most of the time the Spirit's been knocking on you, hey, this, that's got to go. And you're like, shh. The problem isn't like, what? I had no idea that was wrong. And there's some times where that happens as you grow in Christ and like, oh, I've never realized that. But the Spirit brings it up at the right time. And so this is not a go search and stomp out the sin out of your life thing when he says examine yourself. It's more like he's saying, take a look at yourself. Just open your eyes. Because what you're doing is absolutely offensive to the celebration that you're having and the name under which you're having it. The name of Jesus Christ. So let a man examine himself. And if you won't, then what Paul says here is God will. God will bring judgment. God will demand your attention over something where you have been ignoring him. You've been pushing him away. Have you ever been there? It's a, it's a hard thing to wrestle with the Spirit of God, isn't it? That's a, that's a hard life. Some people, when you come into church and you see somebody looking miserable, you can assume a couple things. You can assume they hate me or they don't know God or whatever. But one of the things that I generally bring to mind is they might be wrestling with the Spirit of God and they might be losing, you know? Like they're suffering because they won't just give in. And, and sometimes what it does is just prompts me to pray, you know, God, if that's what's going on there, just get through to them so that this battle can be short instead of long. Because I know the misery of that. That's a hard thing to do because God does not give in with his children. You know, it's what we looked at in Hebrews 12, the idea that God chastens those he loves. His discipline to us is out of his love because he cares too much about us to let us just wander, to let us just go off into whatever. He comes after us. The choice is ours, whether we'll respond or not, but God comes after us to the place where there is grace in his discipline because we don't deserve to be brought back. You know, that's grace. He gives us that as a gift. And so this disciplining hand of God. And so the solution, verse 33, so then my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone's hungry, he should eat at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. I mean, is this the simplest solution of all time? He says, listen, here's your solution to avoid judgment and to avoid this, the, 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 uh, you know, the stain on the name of Christ. Just consider each other. Treat one another as equals. Include one another. Don't leave anybody out. Don't push yourself ahead. Just wait for one another. The, the, the word there can be receive one another. Welcome one another. Um, actually, our concept of, uh, I don't know if you've ever had this. Maybe, maybe this was never a part of yours, but the idea of manners at a dinner table, one of, those, one of those principles is when you sit down at a dinner table and someone gets served, it's considered bad manners for that person to dive into their food. Is this surprising to anybody? Like, oh, I'm glad I got mine first. Like, you're not supposed, you're supposed to wait till everyone served. That came out of Christianity from this. Wait for one another. That was an application of this principle. 
that said, I, just because I got served first, we still eat as a body. We eat together in community. I don't eat first and then, you know, get done first and get up first. It's not, a, it's not a, just a function of getting the task done. I need to eat, so it doesn't matter what I eat. It's a task of relationship and community. And so we eat together. And so there's that principle of like waiting for everyone to be served before I eat. But in, in this, it was about um, putting aside the, the worldly measures of class and success and wealth and, and nobility and position and all that, putting all that aside because the church of Christ has no way of uh, assimilating those structures. We don't bring our title into church. You know what I mean? It's, it's one of the reasons that to me, it's not a big deal if you call me pastor or not. I don't care. Because there is no rank here in that, in that way. We're all one in the body of Christ. Now there is, there's, a, there's authority that I'm supposed to have and you exercise and all that stuff. But the reality is, we're all children of God on the same level. And so the, when we come to church, there's not a better Christian and a worse Christian and, a, and a, you know, this person's important and this person's not. And if you go to a church that treats people like that, they're, they're struggling with this truth. That we are set free, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, that there's no better or worse. We're just we're all sinners saved by grace, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, saved by his his miraculous touch. And without it, we are all just as hopelessly lost as anybody else. And so we are receivers of the grace of God. And so Paul says to them this simple solution: if you would open your eyes, you would see. Just wait for one another. If you're going to be hungry, if you, if you had an appetite for a meal that you can't share with everyone, do that at home. If you want to get together with just your friends and just the people you like, you do that at home. You do that in your homes, not in the house of God, not under the name of Christ. When you do it under the name of Christ, you bring reproach to the name of Christ. You bring a testimony to the name of Christ out there that doesn't belong out there. And so he says, that's all the way back to the beginning, you do more harm than good. It would be better if you didn't meet at all. Make sense? And so he says, if you will do that, if you will just do that, you don't have to face this discipline of God, of, of sickness and, and even death. You can solve it. it. When you meet together, you will not result in judgment. It's, it's that simple. You don't have to be judged by God and disciplined by God. And so they are being judged. What are they being judged for? They are being judged by God because the name of Christ is being dragged through the mud in public by the people of God. And God is coming after them in in supernatural ways. Um, Does God always do that? Not not always. God God does what God knows is exactly right. He knows when to give mercy and he knows when to to bring the rod. God knows all of that stuff. So I'm thankful for for God's perfect timing in all of that. I also know that at the beginning of the church, there seemed to have been a a real emphasis from the Spirit of God on the purity of the church. That these, these moments in time when churches were being originally formed and the gospel was first being introduced to different cultures, it was vitally important that there was a purity to it. And the Spirit of God was very jealous about that. And it seems like now that we are much further down the road with the Word of God printed in our hand, that there is more just accountability for us to look from the Word of God for ourselves and to wrestle with the Spirit of God. So I, I, don't see, I don't know that I've seen a lot of people come and not give everything God asked them to give and get struck dead in church like Ananias and Sapphira. You know what I mean? I'm not saying he couldn't or wouldn't. I'm just saying it just doesn't seem as normal 
as it seemed like in that day, uh, God amped that up. And so he says, do this so that when you meet together, it will not result in judgment. Okay, then now here's the next phrase. And this is just a throwaway phrase, but I, I, I think it's interesting. It brings to mind something. So let me just, what it says, the last part of chapter 11 here says, and when I come, I will give further directions. Now, in the, in the original text there, there's different ways you can translate that. One of the ways that you can translate it, which I think is probably in light of the fact that Paul is writing a letter to the Corinthians in response to a letter they've written to him. Like we've, we've followed along with that as we've gone through. They've had questions. They wrote him a letter and he's responding to their questions. And it seems like when Paul gets here, when he says, I will give further directions, he's, he talks about like, I will address the remaining matters. Those other things you asked me about, I'll talk to you about them when I see you. Okay, that, that, that's kind of like the inference here. It's, it, it, it might be that he's saying, well, I have other things I want to tell you, but I'll, I'll wait. But it seems like he's saying there's other things you asked about and I'm not going to talk about them in a letter. Now, why would Paul not write those things in a letter? Okay, it could be that these are individuals that had questions and or, and or issues, and Paul wanted to go talk to them in a different mode than writing a letter to the whole church. There was maybe some sensitivity, gentleness, privacy, or, or just some appropriateness there? Other thoughts? Okay. He wanted to do some things face-to-face as opposed to in writing. Now, that's interesting to me because that's kind of like the, the battle lines of relationship in our world today. What do I do face-to-face versus what do I do by typing in some characters? Do you know what I mean? Isn't that interesting that Paul had some things that he wrote down that we still benefit from today and other things he said, this is not for a written conversation. This is for a personal conversation. So it suggests that we should know the difference in the spirit of God between the two of them, that some matters are matters for face-to-face conversation and some matters are for, you can write this down, you know, so How do we tell the difference between the two of those? There is wisdom that comes from the Spirit of God in that. How do we tell the difference between something that can be written and something that needs more personal contact? Because I would say this, what you'll find is that we are are developing, at least in, in this Western culture, we are developing into relationally incompetent people. We are so afraid of rejection, we are so afraid of discomfort, And we've magnified it into this giant thing that nobody knows how to have difficult conversations anymore. And you don't have to. You can put something up on your Facebook account with not a name on it, but this whole conversation about how they did you wrong and get everybody on your side. And and you can feel like you addressed it, but you didn't address anything. You You can take your phone out and you can whip off some snarky texts to somebody and feel like you're big and strong, and you're having this big conversation, but you're not face-to-face with them, and there's no redemptive value in that. You feel safe behind your keyboard, right? You feel more comfortable behind your keyboard. You feel like you've got the distance that, that removes the discomfort, but that's not relationship, is it? Relationship goes forward into that discomfort. Relationship resolves. 
Relationship addresses. And what I find more and more is that marriages and parenting and friendships and job relationships suffer from a lack of the backbone to have the difficult conversation, to even know that there's value in having it. Because all it feels like is a negative, because I got to go have this conversation and I don't know what to say. If, if conversations only happened when you knew what to say, you would very rarely have difficult conversations, right? Sometimes it's not about knowing what to say, it's knowing that God is leading you to have the conversation. Your step of faith sometimes is just stepping into it. And, and many, many times it can blow up because your flesh is in there. But you know what? That, at least I'm going towards it. At least I'm walking by faith, trying to follow the Lord. And if my humanity gets in the way, at least I have a possibility of redemption there because I'm trying to follow God by the spirit of faith. I'm not trying to protect myself without with like muting out the spirit of God. And so I would say, as believers... We need to find ways to be grace-filled and to walk forward into understanding when a conversation needs to happen face-to-face. So if we are going to do that, now not every conversation relationally needs to happen face-to-face and not even every uncomfortable conversation needs to happen face-to-face. So if you had to say, how do you tell, what are the clues about whether something can be done in writing or whether something can be done face-to-face? What are the, the, the earmarks or the, the clues that you pick up or the general ideas or rules of thumb that you might use to decide whether this is a conversation I should make sure that I see them or this is a conversation that I can write them a letter or, or note or jot them a text or something like that? Melissa? Right, but there is some of that, like certainly this stuff is important that he's talking to them about, but there is a sense that this is too important and it's too dicey. It might get mixed up. At the same time, there's like conversations that can get mixed up because I had them face-to-face and they didn't write it down and nobody remembers what was said. So there is discernment in, so it's important, what does that mean? Does that mean this is better that I take my time and really put down the words that I have thought through? Or does this mean that this is important in a way that you need to see me face-to-face because you need to hear my heart in it? Kath? Yeah. So what you're suggesting in that where it could be misunderstood is that I have some sense of what the other person's vulnerabilities are in conversation. And that suggests relationship, doesn't it? Do I know where somebody else, like if I interacted with them enough to know that they're vulnerable in this, if I type out a note to them, they're going to take a dark tone with it. They're going to hear it in a dark tone and I don't want that for them. So I'm going to have this conversation with them on the phone or face-to-face or whatever. But that, that requires some relationship. That requires it not being all about me and my comfort level. It requires that I know kind of them. Lisa? Yeah. I would... I would say this even, there have been these times in my life, knowing that person and even having conversations, there are times in my life where I had conversations face-to-face because I thought it was so important and I didn't want to be misunderstood and all that, and I was completely misunderstood in the, in the face-to-face conversation. And, and so we went back and like, no, no, you didn't understand me, we went back. And what became clear over time is this is not a matter of they need to see my heart. This is a matter of they're going to take my words and twist them. And all of a sudden, what I did is I backed up to, now I'm going to, I still want to address you, but I'm going to write them down so that here they are. You know what I mean? And that, that's your, there's a leading of the Spirit of God. So what, what you find as you walk through areas in life like this is there aren't many great rules of thumb to go by. If you don't have an agenda, like 
to me, the, if you go to the Lord and you say, Lord, I don't know what I should do here. Now, I don't want to talk to them. Is there any way I could get by with not talking to them? Like that is, you know what I mean? We slant it. We, hey, could you give me the right words to put in a letter so I don't have to talk? Like we've got an agenda there. That's not considered seeking the Lord, right? That seeking the Lord is God. I, this is something that has to get addressed, I feel like, but I don't know what to say in it. So prompt me. Give me an opportunity. I'm going to bump into that person or make me sure that I need to have this conversation. I need to pick up the phone. Now is the time or I need to sit down and write a letter. You move in me and I'm going to be listening and I'm going to be sensitive and and move forward. And I've had that happen before. I've had it happen where, you know, I sat down to write a letter and I, because I felt all this stuff churning inside of me and I'm going to write a letter and I sit down and I write a letter and it's like, no, it's not the right letter. I just, it's just not right. And then three months later, oh, I got to... You know, that's still not right. And then three months later, something else happens and it's like, this is what I need to say. And, it, and it's like the Spirit of God just like crystallizes and you're sure this is what needs to be said and you say it. And, it, and I don't care what comes back because I know God has prompted this. And so their choice is their choice. I, I mean, I care. I would, I'm rooting for this. That's why I'm, I'm doing it. But I've released that to the Lord. I've trusted God with that so that I can, I'm free to have this conversation. It's one of the reasons that we, with our kids, we, had, we were weird, weird parents and didn't have them have a cell phone until they were 15, which is crazy. You know, what, 15? What are you, nuts? You know, your kid might be somewhere lost in the woods and need to call you. Like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, what I was more afraid of, which I felt like was more realistic, was my child is never going to learn how to communicate face-to-face because they're going to be on their phone all the time. They're never going to be able to learn how to lock, lock eyes with someone and have a conversation and listen and, and deal with some awkward moments. I'm much more afraid of that than I am of them being off somewhere and needing to contact me. And, and if you're an adult who has a cell phone, you know the pull of it as an adult, right? So now imagine it with a 12-year-old. Or, or an eight-year-old. I'm not saying don't. I'm just saying, do you understand the power of that and how we kind of like conveniently give our kids these tools to sidestep stuff that they need to walk through? You know, uh, uh, is this generation that goes forward, are they going to have any clue how to talk to one another in actual... Look at, look at the political discussions that are happening in our world today. Everybody's talking, but nobody's listening, right? Isn't that what it feels like? That, what's that from? That's from, we get, we get to post our opinion, but I don't have to, I'm not accountable to anybody. I just tell everybody what I think. You know what I mean? And I'm, so what I'm saying is, we have to be aware as people, like Paul was, that the Spirit of God will bring some things that we can do conveniently through writing or, or, or uh, save it or memorialize it in writing. But other things I need to have conversations. And, and the, the de- deciding factor, the guiding factor is the Spirit of God leading me, not my level of comfort, which I thought was pretty cool. Like, that's just a thing you could bl- brush by, but I thought that was pretty cool that here's Paul saying, I've got other stuff to talk about, but I'm not going to do it in a letter. I'm going to do it when I come see you. So hopefully that's something that informs us as we go forward. All right, so let's get to chapter 12, because then we're going to get into this really for the rest of chapter 12 till, uh, till the famous discussion about love in chapter 13. And this builds off of the discussion about communion and celebrating, remembering the body of Christ and how they're treating each other. And so Paul has made the point that you can't treat each other like that because 
Uh, it's dishonoring to the body of Christ. Christ gave himself for us, and you're celebrating that. You should treat the body of Christ uh, like that we're all equal, you know, by the grace of God, we're all saved by the blood, like that. Then we get to chapter 12, and he gives another reason for why the body should be treated without prejudice. And the, it's the fact that we are all one body. And so he starts the discussion in, in chapter 12, verse 1. Now about spiritual gifts, brothers. I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God can say, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. Okay, and then we're going to get down to what the different gifts that he lists here are. It's not a complete list of gifts, um, and there's some discussion about what those gifts are, and then about how the body works together. And so, big, big, long discussion here, but let's start off with this, this part of the discussion. So, what are spiritual gifts? Paul says, now about spiritual gifts. Actually, the word gifts is not in the original text there. It talks about now about spiritual kind of implied things, now about stuff that's spiritual, um, but because the whole rest of the chapter is about these spiritual gifts, it, it seems like that's the best way to use that word, about spiritual gifts, brothers. So what are spiritual gifts? Well, spiritual gifts are things that every single person who is a child of God has. It is something that God gives you as a child of God that is a supernatural uh, powered ability in you to serve the body of Christ, to work for the kingdom of God, something that's supernatural. Now, it, so what it means is if you were uh, you know, someone who, could, who couldn't sing before you were saved and then you got saved, the spiritual gift is probably not God gave you the ability to supernaturally sing. You know what I mean? Like, it's not really like that. Now, it doesn't mean that your talents and abilities aren't things that can get, can't get infused by the Spirit of God. But it does mean that what God gives you at salvation is the ability, the capacity to do certain tasks that are necessary for the cause of Christ in the power of God, in a supernatural measure, so that the work of Christ can flourish, can, can explode, so that the kingdom of God can be served. And so Paul says, let's talk about spiritual gifts. And, and why would God do that? Well, here's what happens, and, and we'll see this as it goes. There are all these different gifts that are necessary for the body to function together. Lots of different roles and abilities, and, and that makes sense to us. Not everybody can be the boss, and not everybody can be the, you know, the, the, the low, low totem pole worker. There's got to be different roles for different people. Any military organization, any organization at all, has these different roles. And you take this part, and you take this part. We get that. But what he says in the body of Christ is that you cannot accomplish your task fully in the Spirit of God without relying on each other, without being connected to each other spiritually. Which is more than just task-oriented, you know, accomplishing tasks. This is about that you and the people around you in church have a spiritual connectedness where God himself is coordinating what you're doing and you are working together according to God's design to serve 
the kingdom of God as the body of Christ. You are accomplishing the work that Christ once accomplished on the earth because you're his body. He's the head. We saw earlier in, in first. He's the head looking around, deciding whatever. And you're the body. You're taking what he once done, his will, and enacting it in the world. So what does that look like? That looks like Somebody's got a gift of mercy and somebody's got a gift of giving and somebody's got a gift of organizing. And so we get together in these roles and there's a need out there and the organizer has a plan and the giver has the resources and the mercy person has the sympathy and together we bring the spirit of God's work to that person in a way that represents Christ, right? We can't do that with human strength. We can't do that with human wisdom or ability. There's a spirit infusion into these gifts. They are spiritual gifts. They aren't human gifts. They aren't natural human abilities. They are abilities that, that come by, by like the resource or the fountain of the Spirit of God inside of you. So, do the, church, the, the churches of Christ effectively use the spiritual gifts that God has given them to serve the kingdom of God. I would say, if a church is using the spiritual gifts that God has given them, you'll know it. Why? Because what will be happening in that church is not possible to happen without the Spirit of God. You will not be able to go into that church without being impressed by God. Because the stuff that's going on there is stuff that can't happen outside of the power of God. Does that make sense? Now, how many churches have you been in that look like that? Like, you know what I'm saying? It's not about somebody's got a big personality or somebody's got great musical gifts or, or you know, great decorating gifts or whatever. Not about any of that. It's not about human ability. It's about the fact that the Spirit of God is free to work through the people of God. These are gifts that are powered by the Spirit, and they are given to you. You didn't earn them. God didn't look at you and say, well, you're worthy of this great gift, or you're worthy of that great gift. They are gifts that are given to you by the Spirit of God, which means who chooses what gift you get? You don't get in a line. It's not like when I was in college, you know, you had to go get these little cards to pick the classes you wanted and you had to like get up to this line and I want that English section and oh, sorry, we're out of that. And then, oh no, my whole schedule's all messed up. Then I got to go over here and get this. Like you don't get in a line and say, I'd like some of this, please. I'd like some of that, please. God, when he saves you, says, I've created you for a purpose in my kingdom. And so I'm going to give you these abilities. Now use them for the kingdom of God. Use them in supernatural measure Understanding what it means to be um, under the power of the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, used by the Holy Spirit. Understand what that means and then follow the Spirit to, to lead you in work. So if you have a gift of, of uh, uh, prophecy, you have the gift of speaking the truth, you can use that gift without the Spirit. You know that? You can go around just telling people the truth all the time. There's not much evidence of God in that. You might be right in everything you say, but there's no evidence of God in it because there's no fruit in it. Or you can be led by the Spirit of God, and what you find is God brings you to people who, in, in sensitivity to the Spirit, you're able to share truth with in a way that produces fruit in their life because it's driven by the Spirit of God. And that's the difference. 
We love, okay, you gave me a gift. Okay, I'm going to go use it. I'm going to go use it for the kingdom of God. Great. But you can't use it without the Spirit. That's why they're spiritual gifts. Without the filling of the Spirit, your spiritual gifts are dead. They're worthless. They, don't, they only power, it's like you took a, a lamp and unplugged it. It might look like a great lamp, but it's not going to give any light until you plug it in. So your spiritual gift is sitting there all ready to use, but if you plug it into human power, it's not going to do what it was designed to do. You have to plug it into spiritual power, the Spirit of God inside of you. And so he says, about spiritual gifts, brothers, and, and the word brothers there again reminds us these gifts are given to believers. As messed up as the church at Corinth was, he considered them brothers, which means children of God, people who shared this destiny. He's talking to them as people who have received spiritual gifts. And he says, I don't want you to be confused. I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be misinformed. I want to explain to you what these spiritual gifts are. And he's going to take the whole chapter here and explain these spiritual gifts. All right? So he starts. His first point is... Kind of like this abrupt turn, but he's making a point here. And it seems as though they are confused about how to tell the difference between something that is spirit-filled and something that is not spirit-filled. And that sounds ridiculous, except it happens all the time today. You, we mistake big personality for the presence of the Spirit all the time. You know, one of the things that I've I've seen over the last 10 years a lot is how introverts are seen as lesser Christians because they don't have the big outgoing personality to go win the world for Christ, as though God made a mistake in making them introverts. You know what I'm saying? Because, oh, well, if you're really filled by the Spirit of God, you're going to go witness and save a bunch of people, or you're going to be the guy up front making everybody laugh, and and everybody's going to be like personality. But it's not personality. The Spirit is not personality, right? The Spirit gives various gifts to various people. And there can be great big personalities that we've seen in the Church of Christ that have gone forward without the Spirit in the name of Christ and come crashing down. And lots and lots of people listened and lots and lots of people followed, except they weren't really following somebody who was in the Spirit. And it became evident after time, right? So we don't do a great job as believers of discerning is this the Spirit or not the Spirit? And Paul's point is, okay, I'm going to explain to you some of the ways that you can understand what's the Spirit and what's not the Spirit. So he ta- starts by talking about when you were pagans. Before you were saved, before you were Christians, the word pagan there actually is the word Gentile, but in this context it means those who are without God because they're still Gentiles. You know, the people of Corinth are still Gentiles. He's saying when you were pagans, when you lived without God, when you were godless, that's what he's saying. Okay. You were influenced and led astray by mute idols. Very interesting thing he says there. The word led astray that's put there is a term that's often used for people who were taken captive in warfare and led away as slaves in chains. This doesn't happen as much today in our understanding, but it still happens. There's stuff like this that goes on in places like Africa and and in Asia and stuff. This does happen still even today that one uh, tribe or country or city or whatever goes to another one and takes them captive. It overcomes their city. And then the people who were in that city become slaves. They take them as slaves to be servants in their home or whatever so that they're enslaved simply because they lost the war. And they are led away in chains, led away to be put into servitude against their will, led away. That's the term Paul uses here when he says, you were led away, led astray by idols. You were imprisoned. 
you were enslaved. When you, back when you were godless, you were enslaved. And you were enslaved and influenced by idols that couldn't speak. You would stand in front of a stone and you would pray to it. It wouldn't say anything back to you. It couldn't do anything. But you would listen to it. You were enslaved. You were blinded. You were being led to your destruction, to enslavement. And I think many of us know that experience well. Um, In Corinth, as well as the ancient Roman society and Greek culture, religious observances were normal for people to go nuts in their religious observances. Like, there was this thing called ecstasy, there was this other thing called enthusiasm, um, and they were kind of two different things. And the idea was that when you work yourself up into a frenzy and get all crazified, you have this out-of-body experience, and this out-of-body experience represents the fact that the gods have come into you. The, the oracle at Delphi, I don't know if you've ever heard of the oracle at Delphi in, in ancient Greek culture, um, there was this oracle, it was a number of women over a period of time that lived in this cave, in, in this uh, temple on this mountain at Delphi, and she would go and have visions and, and tell the future and whatever. Uh, they have since found that there are certain like uh, gases that are emitted there that would cause someone to kind of basically get high or, or, or uh, be in an altered state and make utterances and whatever. And so the, they equated this kind of ecstatic, losing-your-mind behavior with being affected by the gods. If someone were under the influence, it was a good god or a bad god. I mean, it, you know, it was either a, a, an evil god, you're demonically possessed, so to speak, or a god that had... And there weren't... I mean, in Greek culture and Roman culture, gods were not pure and good. Gods were just really strong humans. They were just like us. They had their own agendas. They had their own lusts. They had their own power struggles. They, gods were not good and bad like we think of. I mean, they were good in that you know Zeus was considered a good god, but Zeus was not a good god. You know what I mean? Like they were kind of like these colored uh, people. They, they they had this these shades to them. They weren't all pure, right? So. The idea here was that in those cultures, when you went into a temple ceremony, when you went to watch religious priests or priestesses do their thing, you would watch them get worked up into this ecstasy, into this frenzy. And everybody would expect that when they got got out of their body and got crazy, that the gods were speaking through them and there was a message from a god. Now, think about that in in the context of what we're about to get into. Spiritual gifts, the idea of tongues in chapter 14, and why this is such a big deal in the city of Corinth, and why they go to Paul, why they ask Paul, now tell us the difference. How can we tell someone that's under the influence of the Spirit from someone who's under the influence of not the Spirit? Does that make sense? And so there, there's you know, people who, who were uh, influenced or, or had the power to channel demonic power and do miracles, or people who had the ability to do magic tricks and sleight of hand and things. And then they would you know, represent themselves as, no, we have power too. And the people in Corinth would go, well, you know, this person over here has the gift of healing and they can, they can put their hands on somebody and heal them. And this person over here looks like they can do the same thing. How do I know the difference? This person says Jesus did it through them. This person worships another God, but they seem to have the same power this person has. What's that all about? 
Do we have stuff like that going on today where it's difficult for Christians to know whether this is a work of God, whether this is a genuine spiritual true work or not? Like what? Okay. Well, charismatics, I I guess there's the idea in some parts of all denominations where there's people who don't, who act in the spirit, people who don't act in the spirit. But I'm talking about beyond like Christianity, someone would name the name of Christ. Psychics. So you can turn on the TV today and you can watch uh, Long Island Medium. Seems like a nice lady. She's going around telling everybody what's going on in their life. And this dead person's speaking to you. And I see your father behind you and whatever. People ask me all the time, what's that about? Well, I know what it's not about. It's not about the Spirit of God. That's not from God. That's either a hoax or demonic power. That's what that is. And I don't, I don't say that lightly. You know, there's a, uh, Jonathan Edwards on TV. He goes around, oh, I see a red thing and you're, somebody here has the letter S or whatever. You know, like masters of this suggestion and, and, and reality thing and you can see them hunting for answers. You have people who do it in the name of Christ. There are people who have radios in their ears and they're, they're reading cards that people wrote out and they're like, somebody in here has a sick mother and they're like, how did you know? And somebody in the back is reading the card that they wrote. And they, you know what I mean? Like they're, they're charlatans. They're deceivers. The people in Corinth were confused. Like, how can I tell whether someone's genuine or not? Whether this is actually the power of God or not? That's what they're asking. And so Paul starts into this discussion by saying, you know, there was a time when you were influenced by mute idols, when you were blind, when you were in the dark, when you were led astray and you had no no recourse, no help for it. But that's not where you are now. So he starts to unfold to them how you can know that God is at work through spiritual gifts and how the church should function in spiritual gifts. And, and for them to, to really disabuse them of the notion that spiritual gifts had to be this spectacular show, that it had to be oohs and ahs in order for it to be the spirit at work. Do you know what I mean? Like there, there are Christians who, what they really put their faith in is something that, that they look at, that they can see, that somebody can do, that, that looks supernatural, maybe a gift of healing or a gift of tongues or something like that. And they, that brings them assurance that that person has the Spirit of God because it's something they can see. But they would maybe miss somebody who has a gift of mercy that's supernatural in its measure, but th- that doesn't wow them. I mean, it's kind of behind the scenes. It's kind of one-on-one or whatever. So th- that kind of thing for, that, for the, the believers here that, that are going through this, Paul's like, I want to show you it's not all about the spectacular because the work of God is not all about getting applause and putting on a show. It's about the cause of Christ going forward. It's about the name of Christ being honored and glorified. And that's where he starts. He starts by saying, no spirit can say, Jesus is cursed if it's the Spirit of God. Nobody can be in the Spirit and say Jesus is cursed. I'll go, I'll go beyond what Paul says through some other writings and say this. You cannot be in the Spirit of God and do wrong. You can't sin in the Spirit. Did you know that? You will never blow up in anger in the Spirit. You will never curse somebody up one side and down another in the Spirit. You, you won't be selfish in the Spirit. Oh, I was just in the Spirit so much and I was so selfish. Like, doesn't, that doesn't happen, right? When you're in the Spirit, because Galatians 5, so this I say, walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. 
So this, this concept of having the Spirit of God in us is a bigger concept than what gift did I get. It's, a, it's the whole key to Christian living. Is, is the Spirit of God in charge of your life? Is He your power source or not? Do you, how do I get Him to be my power source? Will you trust Him? Remember that believing thing? I trust Him. I give Him my life. I put my life in His hands. And wherever He takes me, that's where I go. Whatever He asks me to do, that's what I do. When He tells me to stop, I stop. When He tells me to go, I go. Spirit of God, I, by faith in the Spirit, through Jesus Christ, He powers my life. That's the essence of the, the, the birthright you have as a believer in Christianity. But that's not what people do. People want to put the Spirit on and then lay the Spirit off. Okay, I need the help. Oh, you know, something going on. We need prayer. Let's all get together. and Let's get very, very spiritual. Let's get very connected to the Spirit. All right, crisis over. Back to me being in charge. Let me go do my thing. Let me, let me make my, my agenda go forward. Oh, oh, Spirit, I need you again. I need you again. Oh, money crisis. Let me, Spirit of God. Okay, whew, that's good. Good job. Okay, now I'm going to go take it from here. And we, that's what we do as believers. The process, the, it may be that a lot of crises show up in your life because that's the only time you do Christianity right. It's the only way God can get you on track is to blow up your life again and again. It's almost like that discipline thing we just read about, right? Like God, the only way that you actually pay any attention to the Spirit is if your life's falling apart. So maybe that's why your life's falling apart. Maybe if we learned to live in the Spirit and walk after the Spirit day by day in everything big and small, successes and failures, and we had peace that goes beyond understanding because the Spirit of God is in charge of my life and wherever it goes is where He takes me, maybe there wouldn't have to be all this stuff going on in my life. And if there was, I wouldn't care because it's not about that. It's about Him. And so these spiritual gifts are the manifestation of the Spirit in me. They are the outworking of the Spirit. They are the outworking of the plan of God as a testimony to the world and as a a mandate for the body of Christ to work together as the body of Christ. And so Paul says to them, I want you to be able to discern if somebody's in the Spirit or not. And so he says, nobody who is in the Spirit can say, Jesus be cursed, which is really anathema. You know, Jesus is worthless. Jesus is, literally, Jesus is damned. That's, that's literally what it's saying there. I don't think that he's giving a formula thing where it's like anybody who says these words, I think what he's telling you is if somebody's acting and says this isn't coming from Jesus, this power isn't from Jesus, I got this power from somewhere else, Jesus is, not, is kind of pointless because I can get that power without him, that is not the Spirit of God. Anyone who says there is another source for life or hope or salvation, or forgiveness outside of Jesus Christ or, or added to Jesus Christ is not in the Spirit of God. Very simple to know, right? So if you're talking to somebody who says they're a believer, but they see ghosts all the time, you know what I'm saying? Like We're, we're not doing, you're, you're outside of what God said the Spirit does in us and through us. So you can't combine them. And if you do, if that confuses you or, or someone seems like a nice person but they happen to you know, commune with dead people or, or tell the future or whatever, you can say, that I know that that's not the work of God so I know that that's not the Spirit of God. It's that simple. And that's why Paul gives that out. All right, so we'll pick up there next time when 